Welcome to the official ABA Law Student Podcast, where we talk about issues that affect law students and recent grads. From finals and graduation to the bar exam and finding a job, this show is your trusted resource for the next big step. You're listening to the Legal Talk Network. Hello, and welcome to another edition of the ABA Law Student Podcast. I'm Meg Steenberg, a 1L at Syracuse University College of Law JDI program. I'm a graduate of Georgetown University and hold a master's from Syracuse's Newhouse School of Communications. This episode is sponsored by NBI. Taught by experienced practitioners, NBI provides practical, skill-based CLE courses attorneys have trusted for more than 35 years. Discover what NBI has to offer at nbi-sems.com. We are honored to have with us today Natasha M. Fortune. Ms. Fortune is currently an assistant attorney in charge at the Legal Aid Society of New York in the juvenile rights practice. She supervises a team of attorneys, serves as defense counsel in juvenile delinquency proceedings, and also represents children in abuse, neglect, and custody proceedings in family court. Ms. Fortune serves as a mentor to interns of color, is a member of the Hiring Screening Committee, and supervises interns from the NYU School of Law Juvenile Defenders Clinic. Her commitment to serving the public goes beyond the courtroom, and she frequently volunteers to assist Project Window, a nonprofit organization dedicated to empowering young girls by building their self-confidence and providing them with mentorship and life skills. Additionally, Ms. Fortune is a certified tax preparer and owned a tax franchise. She received her BS in computer science at St. John's University and her JD at St. John's University School of Law. Ms. Fortune, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Well, let's start with your present job. Assistant Attorney in Charge at the Legal Aid Society of New York and the Juvenile Rights Practice. Who are your clients and what types of issues do you see? Well, at the Legal Aid Society in the Juvenile Rights Practice, we represent children that are alleged to be abused and or neglected. Um, We also represent um, children in PINS cases, person in need of supervision, and we represent children in juvenile delinquency proceedings, children that have been arrested. And I primarily do juvenile delinquency cases. And how did you decide to head down this path of service? Well, I attended St. John's University School of Law, and upon entering law school, I had no idea that this area of law existed at all. And my second summer, instead of interning, I decided to do a study abroad program in South Africa through Howard University School of Law. And when I came back in the fall, I felt like I needed to sort of make up for the the summer that I missed. And so I decided to apply for a clinic. I was looking at my options of, you know, what could I apply to? And the child advocacy clinic appealed to me because I didn't know that you could represent children in any capacity. And so I applied, I interviewed, and that is what sort of sparked my interest in this area of law. So children in court, what are the parameters, the age, the reason? How does a child find him or herself in court? And at what age can they find themselves in court? Well, on juvenile delinquency proceedings, children who um, get arrested in New York can actually be arrested at the age of seven years old, which is, yes, it's insane um, that at seven you could actually be handcuffed and detained. But that is currently the law in New York. And we represent children up until 17 years old. And so right now there's actually a bill on the Senate floor to raise the minimum age from seven to 12. So we're hoping that happens. And 
recently, actually, the, the law changed. It was called the Raise the Age Act. But prior to that change in the law in 2016, uh, children, children were considered adults in New York at the age of 16. With Raise the Age, now children who are 16 and 17 and charged with misdemeanors can go directly to family court. And if they're charged with felonies, they start in criminal court, in adult court. However, they have the opportunity to go to family court. And so at what stage do they reach out to you and how do they reach out to you? Uh, we are assigned by the court. Uh, children in New York in juvenile delinquency proceedings are entitled, entitled to representation. And so once a case has been filed, that's when we get involved and we're assigned by the court. So this conversation is also about race and the racial injustices from the classroom to the courtroom. How do you see race influencing what you see? as an attorney? Well, I mean, I think as we all know, there's completely disproportionate minority contact um, in the juvenile justice system. And so race is really at every stage of, of that proceeding from the time the arrest is happening to meeting with the Department of Probation to having the case filed by the prosecutor and then the court proceedings, race plays a role and all of that. And how have you seen that? So if you start, you know, if you say, okay, in the school or where it begins, how do you see race playing that role through your stories and through your eyes? One thing that I think really contributes to that disproportionate minority representation in the juvenile justice system is the fact um, that there is over-policing in neighborhoods that are predominantly neighborhoods with people of color, that there is um, significant police presence in those schools. And so minor infractions that could be solved with um, intervention from school officials, now the police are, are called in or they're already present. And do you see a lot of it beginning in the schools or do you, do you see it? I mean, I, I would imagine it's hard. It's so cyclical to understand or to even know where it begins, whether it begins at home or in the school system or, or where the prejudices begin for, the, for the, those you represent. A lot of it does begin in school. I mean, even when we're talking about the younger children, you see children of color getting suspended more, um, getting expelled more, and it begins from a very young age and continues on. I would also say, obviously, the neighborhood, peer interaction, what's happening at home, obviously, is, is of great concern. Lack of services um, in the community, in the schools, lack of education um, for those that are working with people of color and, and youth. Um, so there are several things that contribute to that disparity. So they go from school and the over-policing of the school, they end up in the court system. And at some point, if they see that it is a matter of a necessity in this world, how do you, is there a way that you then step in and say, this isn't about this individual stealing to steal. This is about an individual who hasn't eaten and is looking for support, or is that is that part of your role? And how and, and when can you step in to clarify some of these things too, and to help? Absolutely, any chance that we get to really tell the story of our clients, we take that opportunity. So if that is through trial, then then that's what we'll do. If that is, let's say that the child is found guilty, which we call a finding in family court. So let's say they're is a finding against that child and they, the judge has decided that, yes, they have done what is alleged to have been done. 
then they meet with the Department of Probation. And that gives them the opportunity, and we get to speak to them beforehand, to really talk about what is happening in their life. So they will be asked questions about their functioning at home, school suspensions. They'll be asked about their friends. They'll be asked about any you know, drugs or alcohol or any abuse that's happened in the past. So to just to get a clear picture of this child's life as a whole, you know, they're not just this one incident that happened. And so that's where you really get to tell your story so people can understand that, okay, yes, this this happened, but these are the things happening in the background that have kind of led this particular child there. Well, let's touch upon some of those in the more recent headlines. So have you seen a change through Black Lives Matter and how is there a greater sense of awareness of these biases or have you have you seen anything at all change as a result of some of of the recognition of these movements and the movements growing especially this year? I definitely feel that there has been such a push for people to educate themselves to realize what exactly is happening with people of color with black people. I think that when it comes to employment and schools and diversity and equity is is such a prominent thing now. I definitely feel that there is a a push in every way for equality. But the the biggest thing I think is people really taking the time to educate themselves and and recognizing those unconscious biases and how they play a role in their everyday lives, at work, with their colleagues, with their clients. Yeah. Have you seen bias in the courtroom right right now? We'll get to law school later, but like right now, as an attorney, do you see bias yourself? I have a definitely experienced bias myself. There have been instances where I go into the courtroom and it's thought that I'm automatically the caseworker as opposed to the attorney. Or I have been sitting with my client or my client and their parent and someone assumes that I am either the caseworker or part of the family, there's no way that I would be the attorney on the case. Or walking into court, going into the same courtroom, the same courthouse every day, and being asked for my identification when others are not being asked for their identification every day. And so it it absolutely happens in work settings in the courthouse quite often, too often. Yeah. All right. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with Natasha Fortune. If you want to stay up to date on today's hottest issues, strengthen your knowledge with practical how-to courses and learn the latest legal strategies and troubleshooting tips, then NBICLE has what you need. NBI courses range from basic to advanced and cover all legal disciplines. Learn online and on your schedule with our on-demand courses. Visit nbi-sems.com and save 50% on your next CLE course with promo code NBI-STUDENT. And we're back with Natasha Fortune. And let's, let's talk about the pandemic and how has that influenced who you see and some of the situations that you see with regard to your clients? Do you see more needs, fewer services, increased arrests, fewer arrests. How, did, how has the pandemic influenced your job? In terms of arrests, we actually have seen fewer arrests. 
or the arrests are happening. Um, but everyone, I would have to say, is sort of working together to do what they can to have those children released instead of sending them to detention. So that has been a big change uh, during this period. In addition to that, as soon as uh, things were shutting down, there was a big push to get kids out of detention if they were already in detention. So that was, uh, you know, I mean, as positive as you can have um, from the situation, but there were those changes. And in terms of services, service providers have done a pretty good job of continuing to provide services virtually, which is the best they can do at this point. However, there's still access to services. Probably the the biggest issue is access to technology. Mm -hmm. Um, So while the services might be available and they're available virtually, not everyone has a cell phone or a computer or Wi-Fi. And so that is probably the biggest obstacle and one of the consequences of of the pandemic. We've also seen a, a, a just an uptick in family offense cases. Everyone's, you know, stuck in the house mm-hmm. together. Um, so we have definitely seen an uptick in those in those cases. But those children primarily do go back home and um, if services are necessary, then we try to put services in place. Okay. So lawyers are problem solvers and how can we And how are you working to correct these racial injustices? I mean, you spoke about the over-policing. How do you correct that? How do you, uh, in the community, in the school, how do you begin to fix the the problems? Every little bit counts. So providing mentorship or workshops, those are some of the things that I've done personally um, to try to combat that. There is a very big push, I would say, right now, um, especially in New York, to and everywhere really, to change the the criminal justice system, period. And so I think once those conversations are are happening, and like I spoke about the bill that's on the Senate floor right now, but really just putting yourself in spaces where you can be heard, in spaces where you can have leadership positions. So in particular, in the juvenile justice system, that could mean maybe you want to become a judge in order to effectuate change that way, or perhaps you want to work with the Department of Probation and help shift uh, culture and change. They have a lot of decision-making power when it comes to our youth. I think there are just several ways to to make change. And collectively, yes, I think that we can get to a point where there is sustainable, you know, long-lasting change. Well, as you mentioned, you mentor and you're certainly a role model for so many yourselves. And to see you in the courtroom and, and helping has, I know, has got to be very inspiring. How did you choose to go to law school? What kind of access did you have and who were your mentors to inspire you to go? I would, I would have to say my role models have been um, my family, my mother and my sister and father. But my, I have one older sister and our education has just been very important like growing up you knew that you had to you know you had to go to school so no one ever pushed me to specifically become an attorney but it was clear that for me anyway that education was going to be the pathway and so early on I decided I wanted to be an attorney I was a bit discouraged by a guidance counselor and decided that I would just 
I, I just picked, you know, I just picked computer science as a major. Um, I'm like, well, computers are nice. I'll, I'll try that. And so I did that and I did well, but I was not happy and knew that this is not what I want to do. Um, by junior year, I knew that this is not what I want to do forever. And senior year, I took a business law class and the professor um, was an attorney and I, that was it for me. I took her class the first and second semester of that year and decided that I was going to apply to law school the following year. I had some good conversations with her and she was very, I guess I would consider her a, a role model as well, that she sort of reignited that uh, desire for me to attend law school. And it sounds like that belief in you that you didn't receive from your guidance counselor yes. had been very motivating. Absolutely. So how about the experience itself? Did you feel the experience of law school itself? Did you feel as though it was different as a woman of color? I definitely feel there were times, well, first I should say that there were not very many people of color in my class. My section, maybe there were, I would say maybe five of us, perhaps a few more. There were just definitely times I suffered from imposter syndrome, kind of wondering, how did I, how did I get here? Am I supposed to be here? But you fight through those moments and you have uh, strong support systems. I found a very strong support system in the Black Law Students Association um, and made really lifelong friends in my section. So those assisted me, but I think just being able to find my voice and make sure that I'm seen and make sure that I'm heard. And those were things that I struggled with during law school. What would you be your advice now to minorities in law school? I would definitely tell them to find a mentor. I did not do that just because I didn't know um, the importance of having one. So I would definitely find a mentor. I would know the difference between having a mentor and an advocate, someone who can really present you with options and opportunities. I would make sure they remind themselves if they are having those moments of imposter syndrome that remind themselves that they, they earned it. They worked to get there. So, you know, don't, don't doubt yourself and, and push past those, those moments. How about for everyone else? in the classroom. And, and, you know, not only in the classroom, but as they move out into the world, you know, if you could say one thing, what would it be? Or many things. <laughs> I would tell them to really take the time to do some self-reflection because we all have unconscious biases. And I feel like you say that and people are like, oh no, not, not me, that there's no way that I could um, have any sort of unconscious bias, but we do, we all have them and they bleed into our home life, work life, how you raise your children, how you deal with your colleagues, your clients, your witnesses. If you're a litigator, even jury selection, it, it affects everything. And so once you take the time, I think, to recognize them and really sort of identify them, then you can work on overcoming them. And I think that's, really important. Do you find yourself providing hope and guidance to your clients? Do you find yourself in that role of not only protecting them in this very vulnerable moment, but also looking ahead and saying, hey, here's how we get you on the right path? Absolutely. I mean, it's hard because it's, 
you're just like one little tiny piece in this one moment of this child's life. But you definitely try to encourage them, speak life into them, if they're, especially if they're not getting that at home, which oftentimes they are not, just to let them know that there are people who want to help you, that you are capable of doing whatever it is that you want to do, that you are not, you're not your circumstances. I try. I definitely try. And you have those times where you feel like there's nothing you can, nothing you can do is going to make this better or make life better for this person. And then you have those moments where you did really impact someone. And those are the moments that just keep you going. And so for those clients and for those in the classroom and, and those in the courtroom on either end as an attorney or as a, as a client, do you think there will be, ever be a level playing field? I would like to think so. I'm a bit of an optimist. So I would like to think that there will be a level, a level playing field one day. I don't want to let, you know, I don't want to let cynicism take over. And there's, there's progress. It might be slow progress. However, there is progress. So I hope that bill gets gets passed that raises the age. And there are committees in the state working on the juvenile justice system. I mean, like I said, that, that there's there's progress. It's slow, but there's progress. And I I believe that one day that that can happen. I don't know about in my lifetime, but we'll see. Well, looking at you and listening to you, you are clearly passionate and seem to have found your calling. Is this your calling? Do you, do you wish that you had gone a different path or do you still see yourself going on a different path as an attorney down the road? I really don't, I don't see a path outside of serving my community. I don't. Uh, I went into law school thinking that I was going to do real estate, corporate, or entertainment law. That was the plan. Um, <laughs> and clearly did not go that way. Um, and so, and it's been 12 years. So no, I definitely don't, don't see a way out of it. And I, I, a path outside of it. And I try to, I don't want it to be just about work for me. So I try to do things outside of work, like Project Winjo that you mentioned, to continue to engage and, and just serve. Well, thank you for that service. Thank you for this conversation. Your time is so appreciative and appreciated. And thank you for speaking with me today. It's an absolute honor and good luck as you continue to help really, truly such a vulnerable population. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Law Student Podcast. I'd like to invite you to subscribe to the ABA Law Student Podcast on Apple Podcasts. You can also reach us on Facebook at ABA for Law Students and on Twitter at ABA LSD. That's it for now. I'm Meg Steenberg. Thank you for listening. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS, find us on Twitter and Facebook, or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. Remember, U.S. law students at ABA-accredited schools can join the ABA for free. Join now at AmericanBar.org forward slash law student. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, 
its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.